Chapter 9 of In the Heart of Africa by Samuel White Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Fright of the Tukururis. Although my people had been in the highest spirits up to this time, a gloom had been thrown over the party by two causes Jolly's accident and the fresh footmarks of the boss that had been discovered upon the sand by the margins of the river. The Agagirs feared nothing, and if the boss had been legions of demons, they would have faced them sword in hand with the greatest pleasure. But my Tukruris, who were brave in some respects, had been so cowed by the horrible stories recounted of these common enemies at the nightly campfires by the Hamran Arabs, that they were seized with panic and resolved to desert en masse and return to Kantarif, where I had originally engaged them, and at which place they had left their families. In this instance, the desertion of my Tukururis would have been a great blow to my expedition, as it was necessary to have a division of parties. I had the Tukururis, Jalins, and Hamrat Arabs, Thus they would never unite together, and I was certain to have some on my side in any difficulty. Should I lose the Tukruris, the Hamrat Arabs would have been the entire preponderance. The whole of my Tukruris formed in a line before me and my wife, just as the camels were about to leave. Each man had his little bundle prepared for starting on a journey. Old Musa was the spokesman. He said that they were all very sorry that they regretted exceedingly the necessity of leaving us, but some of them were sick, and they would only be a burden to the expedition, that one of them was bound on a pilgrimage to Mecca, and that God would punish him if he should neglect this great duty. Others had not left any money with their families in Katarif that would starve in their absence. I had given them an advance on wages when they engaged at Katarif to provide against this difficulty. I replied, My good fellows, I am very sorry to hear all this, especially as it comes upon me so suddenly. Those who are sick stand upon one side. Several invalids who look remarkably healthy step to the left. Who wishes to go to Mecca? Abderrahman stepped forward, a huge specimen of a Tukruri who went by the nickname of El Jamus, or the Buffalo. Who wishes to remit money to his family? as I will send it and deduct it from his wages. No one came forward. During the pause, I called for pen and paper, which Mohammed brought. I immediately commenced writing and placed the note within an envelope, which I addressed and gave to one of the camel drivers. I then called for my medicine chest, and having weighed several three-grain doses of tartar emetic, I called the invalids and insisted upon their taking the medicine before they started, or they might become seriously ill upon the road, which for three days' march was uninhabited. Mixed with a little water, the doses were swallowed, and I knew that the invalids were safe for that day, and that the others would not start without them. I now again addressed my would-be deserters. Now, my good fellows, there shall be no misunderstanding between us, and I will explain to you how the case stands. You engaged yourself to me for the whole journey, and you received an advance of wages to provide for your families during your absence. You have lately filled yourselves with meat, 
and you have become lazy. You have been frightened by the footprints of the boss. Thus you wish to leave the country. To save yourselves from imaginary danger, you would forsake my wife and myself and leave us to a fate which you yourself would avoid. This is your gratitude for kindness? This is the return for my confidence when, without hesitation, I advanced you money? Go, return to Cataract to your families. I know that all the excuses you have made are false. Those who declare themselves to be sick, inshallah, please God, shall be sick. You will all be welcomed upon your arrival at Cataract. In the letter I have written to the governor, enclosing your names, I have requested him to give each man upon his appearance five hundred lashes with a kurbach for desertion, and to imprison him until my return. Checkmate. My poor Tuk Ruris were in a corner, and in their great dilemma they could not answer a word. Taking advantage of this moment of confusion, I called forward the buffalo, Abderrahman, as I had heard that he really had contemplated a pilgrimage to Mecca. Abderrahman, I continued, you are the only man who has spoken the truth. Go to Mecca, and may God protect you on the journey. I should not wish to prevent you from performing your duty as a Mohammedan. Never were people more dumbfounded with surprise. They retreated and formed a knot in consultation, and in about ten minutes they returned to me, old Musa and Hajali, both leading the pilgrim Adarachman by the hands. They had given in, and Adarachman, the buffalo of the party, thanked me for my permission, and with tears in his eyes, as the camels were about to start, he at once said goodbye. Embrace him, cried old Musa and Hajali, and in an instant, as I had formerly succumbed to the maid Baraka, I was actually kissed by the thick lips of Adarachman, the unwashed. Poor fellow, this was sincere gratitude without the slightest humbug. Therefore, although he was an odoriferous savage, I could not help shaking him by the hand and wishing him a prosperous journey, assuring him that I would watch over his comrades like a father while in my service. In a few instants, these curious people were led by a sudden and new impulse. My farewell had perfectly delighted old Musa and Hajali, whose hearts were one. Say goodbye to the set, the lady, they shouted to Abderrahman, but I assured them that it was not necessary to go through the whole operation to which I had been subjected, and that she would be contented if he only kissed her hand. This he did with the natural grace of a savage, and was led away, crying, by his companions who embraced him with tears, and they parted with the affection of brothers. Now, to hard-hearted and civilized people, who often school themselves to feel nothing or as little as they can for anybody, it may appear absurd to say that the scene was affecting, but somehow or other it was. And in the course of half an hour, those who would have deserted had become staunch friends, and we were all, black and white, Mohammedans and Christians, wishing the pilgrim Godspeed upon his perilous journey to Mecca. The camels started, and if the scene was affecting, the invalids began to be more affected by the tartar emetic. This was the third act of the comedy. The plot had been thoroughly ventilated. 
the last act exhibited the perfect fidelity of my tukruris in whom i subsequently reposed much confidence in the afternoon of that day the brother sharif arrived they were the most renowned of all the sword hunters of the hamrans of whom i had already spoken they were well mounted and having met our caravan of camels on the route heavily laden with dried flesh and thus seen proofs of our success they now offered to join our party i am sorry to be obliged to confess that my ally abodol although a perfect nimrod in sport an apollo in personal appearance and a gentleman in manner was a mean covetous and grasping fellow and withal absurdly jealous tahir sharif was a more celebrated hunter having had the experience of at least twenty years in excess of abodol and although the latter was as brave and dexterous as tahir and his brothers he wanted the cool judgment that is essential to a first-rate sportsman. The following day was the new year, January 1st, 1862, and with the four brothers Sharif and our party, we formed a powerful body of hunters, six Saga Gears and myself all well-mounted, with four gun-bearers and two camels, both of which carried water, we started in search of elephants. Florian was unwell and remained in camp. The immediate neighborhood was a perfect exhibition of gum arabic-bearing mimosas. At this season, the gum was in perfection, and the finest quality was now before us in beautiful amber-colored masses upon the stems and branches, varying from the size of a nutmeg to that of an orange. So great was the quantity, and so excellent were the specimens, that, leaving our horses tied to the trees, both the Arabs and myself gathered a large collection. This gum, although as hard as ice on the exterior, was limpid in the center, resembling melted amber, and as clear as though refined by some artificial process. The trees were perfectly denuded of leaves from the extreme drought, and the beautiful balls of frosted yellow gum recalled the idea of the precious jewels upon the trees in the garden of the wonderful lamp of the Arabian Nights this gum was exceedingly sweet and pleasant to the taste but although of the most valuable quality there was no hand to gather it in this forsaken although beautiful country it either dissolved during the rainy season or was consumed by the baboons and antelopes the agagirs took off from their saddles the skins of tanned antelope leather that formed the only covering to the wooden seats and with these they made bundles of gum when we remounted every man was well laden we were thus leisurely returning home through alternate plains and low open forests of mimosa when tahir sharif who was leading the party suddenly reined up his horse and pointed to a thick bush beneath which was a large gray but shapeless mass he whispered as i drew near umgurun mother of the horn their name for the rhinoceros I immediately dismounted, and with a short number 10 Tatum rifle, I advanced as near as I could, followed by Suleiman, as I had sent all my gun-bearers directly home by the river when we had commenced our circuit. As I drew near, I discovered two rhinoceroses asleep beneath a thick mass of bushes. They were lying like pigs close together, so that, 
at that distance i had been unable to distinguish any exact form it was an awkward place if i were to take the wind fairly i should have to fire through the thick bush which would be useless therefore i was compelled to advance with the wind directly from me to them the agagirs remained about a hundred yards distant while i told suleiman to return and hold my horse in readiness with his own i then walked quietly to within about thirty yards of the rhinoceroses but so curiously were they lying that it was useless to attempt a shot in their happy dreams they must have been suddenly disturbed by the scent of an enemy for without the least warning they suddenly sprang to their feet with astonishing quickness and with a loud and sharp whiff 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 one of them charged straight at me i fired my right-hand barrel in his throat as it was useless to aim at the head protected by two horns at the nose this turned him but he had no other effect and the two animals thundered off together at a tremendous pace now for a tally-ho our stock of gum was scattered on the ground and away went the agagirs in full speed after the two rhinoceroses without waiting to reload i quickly remounted my horse teetle and with suleiman and company i spurred hard to overtake the flying arabs teetle was a good strong cob but not very fast however i believe he never went so well as upon that day for although an abyssinian horse i had a pair of english spurs which worked like missionaries the ground was awkward for riding at full speed as it was an open forest of mimosas which although wide apart were very difficult to avoid owing to the low crowns of spreading branches and these being armed with fishhook thorns would have been serious in a collision i kept the party in view until in about a mile we arrived upon open ground here i again applied the spurs and by degrees i crept up always gaining until at length i joined the agagirs here was a sight to drive a hunter wild the true rhinoceroses were running neck and neck like a pair of horses in harness but bounding along at a tremendous speed within ten yards of the leading hamran this was tahir sharif who with his sword drawn and his long hair flying wildly behind him urged his horse forward in the race amid a cloud of dust raised by the two huge but active beasts that tried every sinew of the horses rotor sharif with a withered arm was second with the reins hung upon the hawk-like claw that was all that remained of a hand but with his naked sword grasped in his right he kept close to his brother ready to second his blow abu dol was third his hair flying in the wind his heels dashing against the flanks of his horse to which he shouted in his excitement to urge him to the front while he leaned forward with his long sword in the wild energy of the moment as though hoping to reach the game against all possibility now for the spurs and these vigorously applied screwed an extra stride out of teetle and i soon found myself in the ruck of men horses and drawn swords there were seven of us and passing abu dol whose face wore an expression of agony at finding that his horse was failing i quickly attained a place between the two brothers tahir and rotor sharif there had been a jealousy between the two parties of agagirs and each was striving to outdo the other thus abu dol was driven almost to madness at the superiority of tahir's horse while the latter who was the renowned hunter of the tribe 
was determined that his sword should be the first to taste blood. I tried to pass the rhinoceros on my left, so as to fire close into the shoulder my remaining barrel with my right hand, but it was impossible to overtake the animals who bounded along with undiminished speed. With the greatest exertion of men and horses, we could only just retain our position within about three or four yards of their tails, just out of reach of the swords. The only chance in the race was to hold the pace until the rhinoceroses should begin to flag. The horses were pressed to the utmost, but we had already run about two miles, and the game showed no signs of giving in. On they flew, sometimes over open ground, then through low bush, which tried the horses severely, then through strips of open forest, until at length the party began to tail off, and only a select few kept their places. We arrived at the summit of a ridge from which the ground sloped in a gentle inclination for about a mile toward the river. At the foot of this incline was a thick, thorny Nabuk jungle, for which impenetrable covert the rhinoceroses proceeded at their utmost speed. Never was there a better ground for the finish of a race. The earth was sandy but firm, and as we saw the winning post in the jungle that must terminate the hunt, we redoubled our exertion so close with the unflagging game. Suleiman's horse gave in. We had been for about twenty minutes at a killing place. Tittle, although not a fast horse, was good for a distance, and he now proved his power of endurance, as I was riding at least two stone heavier than any of the party. Only four of the seven remained, and we swept down the incline, Tahir Sharif still leading, and Abu Do the last. His horse was done, but not the rider, for, springing to the ground while at full speed, sword in hand, he forsook his tired horse, and preferring his own legs, he ran like an antelope, and for the first hundred yards I thought he really would pass us and win the honor of the first blow. It was of no use, the pace was too severe, and although running wonderfully, he was obliged to give way to the horses. Only three now followed the rhinoceroses, Tahir Sharif, his brother Roder, and myself. I had been obliged to give the second place to Roder, as he was a mere monkey in weight, but I was a close third. The excitement was intense. We neared the jungle, and the rhinoceroses began to show signs of flagging as the dust puffed up before their nostrils, and with noses close to the ground, they snorted as they still galloped on. Oh, for a fresh horse! A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse! We were within two hundred yards of the jungle, but the horses were all done. Tittle reeled as I urged him forward. Rotor pushed ahead. We were close to the dense thorns, and the rhinoceroses broke into a trot. They were done. Now, Tar, forward, forward, Tar. Away he went. He was close to the very heels of the beasts, but his horse could do no more than his present pace. Still, he gained upon the nearest. He leaned forward with his sword raised for the blow. Another moment, and the jungle would be reached. One effort more, and the sword flashed in the sunshine as the rearmost rhinoceros disappeared in the thick screen of thorns, with a gash about a foot long upon his hindquarters. Tahir Sharif shook his bloody sword in triumph above his head, but the rhinoceros was gone. 
We were fairly beaten, regularly outpaced, but I believe another two hundred yards would have given us the victory. Bravo, Tahir, I shouted. He had ridden splendidly, and his blow had been marvelously delivered in an extremely long reach, as he was nearly out of his saddle when he sprang forward to enable a blade to obtain a cut at the last moment. He could not reach the hamstring, as his horse could not gain the proper position. We all immediately dismounted. The horses were thoroughly done, and I at once loosened the girths and contemplated my steed Teetle, who, with head lowered and legs wide apart, was a tolerable example of the effects of pace. The other Agagirs shortly arrived, and as the rival Abu Do joined us, Tahir Sharif quietly wiped the blood off his sword without making a remark. This was a bitter moment for the discomfited Abu Do. There is only one species of rhinoceros in Abyssinia. This is the two-horned black rhinoceros, known in South Africa as the Kitloa. This animal is generally five feet six inches to five feet eight inches high at the shoulder, and although so bulky and heavily built, it is extremely active as our long and fruitless hunt had shown us. The skin is about half the thickness of that of the hippopotamus, but of extreme toughness and closeness of texture. When dried and polished, it resembles horn. Unlike the Indian species of rhinoceros, the black variety of Africa is free from folds, and the hide fits smoothly on the body like that of the buffalo. This two-horned black species is exceedingly vicious. It is one of the very few animals that will generally assume the offensive. It considers all creatures to be enemies, and although it is not acute in either sight or hearing, it possesses so wonderful a power of scent that it will detect a stranger at a distance of five or six hundred yards, should the wind be favorable. Florian was now quite incapable of hunting, as he was in a weak state of health, and had for some months been suffering from chronic dysentery. I had several times cured him, but he had a weakness for the strongest black coffee, which, instead of drinking like the natives in minute cups, he swallowed wholesale in large basins several times a day. This was actual poison with his complaint, and he was completely ruined in health. At this time, his old companion, Johann Schmidt the carpenter, arrived, having undertaken a contract to provide for the Italian zoological gardens a number of animals. I therefore proposed that the two old friends should continue together, while I would hunt by myself with the Agagirs toward the east and south. This arrangement was agreed to, and we parted. Our camels returned from Gira with corn, accompanied by an Abyssinian hunter, who was declared by Obudo to be a good man and dexterous with a sword. We accordingly moved our camp, said adieu to Florian and Johann, and penetrated still deeper into the country of the Bas. Our course lay, as usual, along the banks of the river. We decided to encamp at a spot known to the Arabs as Della Della. This was the forest upon the margin of the river where I had first shot the bull elephant when the Agagirs fought with him upon foot. I resolved to fire the entire country on the following day and to push still farther up the course of the Setite to the foot of the mountains 
and to return to this camp in about a fortnight by which time the animals that had been scared away by the fire would have returned accordingly on the following morning accompanied by a few of the agagirs i started upon the south bank of the river and rode for some distance into the interior to the ground that was entirely covered with high withered grass we were passing through a mass of kitar and thornbush almost hidden by the immensely high grass when as i was ahead of the party i came suddenly upon the tracks of rhinoceroses they were so unmistakably recent that i felt sure we were not far from the animals themselves as i had wished to fire the grass i was accompanied by my two breweries and my horsekeeper mohammed number two it was difficult ground for the men and still more unfavorable for the horses as large disjointed masses of stone were concealed in the high grass we were just speculating as to the position of the rhinoceros and thinking how uncommonly unpleasant it would be should he obtain our wind when whiff 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 we heard the sharp whistling snort and a tremendous rush through the high grass and thorns close to us and at the same moment two of these determined brutes were upon us in full charge i never saw such a scrimmage there was no time for more than one look behind i dug the spurs into agar's flanks and clasping him around the neck i ducked my head down to his shoulder well protected with my strong hunting cap and kept the spurs going as hard as i could ply them blindly trusting to providence and my good horse over big rocks fallen trees thick kitar thorns and grass ten feet high with two infernal animals in full chase only a few feet behind me. I heard their abominable whiffing close to me, but so did my good horse, and the good old hunter flew over obstacles in a way I should have thought impossible, and he dashed straight under the hooked thorn bushes and doubled like a hare. The agagirs were all scattered. Mohammed number two was knocked over by a rhinoceros. All the men were sprawling upon the rocks with their guns, and the party was entirely discomfited having passed the kitar thorn i turned and seeing that the beasts had gone straight on i brought agar's head round and tried to give chase but it was perfectly impossible it was only a wonder that the horse had escaped in ground so difficult for riding although my clothes were of the strongest and coarsest arab cotton cloth which seldom tore but simply lost a thread when caught in a thorn. I was nearly naked. My blouse was reduced to shreds. As I wore sleeves only halfway from the shoulder to the elbow, my naked arms were streaming with blood. Fortunately, my hunting cap was secured with a chin strap, and still more fortunately, I had grasped the horse's neck. Otherwise, I must have been dragged out of the saddle by the hooked thorns all of the men were cut and bruised some having fallen upon their heads among the rocks and others had hurt their legs in falling in their endeavors to escape mohammed number two the horsekeeper was more frightened than hurt as he had been knocked down by the shoulder and not by the horn of the rhinoceros as the animal had not noticed him its attention was absorbed by the horse i determined to set fire to the whole country immediately and descending the hill toward the river to obtain a favorable wind i put my men in a line extending over about a mile along the river's bed 
and they fired the grass in different places. With a loud roar, the flame leaped high in the air and rushed forward with astonishing velocity. The grass was as inflammable as tinder, and the strong north wind drove the long line of fire spreading in every direction throughout the country. End of chapter 9